Welcome to those who are joining us online also today. Today is the second Sunday of our journey through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation using the Gospel of John as our guide. And as you might imagine, there is no way we can cover all the content of the Bible and the number of Sundays we have now between now and May. So our daily reading guide you can find at the front desk. It'll bring you through the books of Genesis, Isaiah, John, and Acts this year along with Psalms and Proverbs. Or if you're feeling ambitious and you would like to read through the whole Bible in a year, we encourage you just to find a pace that works for you. But on Sundays, out of necessity, we're going to be jumping from significant moment to moment as we move through the scripture, remembering what Jesus came to do and to be for us, and seeing the connections between the unfolding story of the God's people in the Old Testament and the new creation that he's bringing about through Jesus. And today is our big first leap forward because last week God brought the world into existence. And today we're talking about Abraham. <laughs> There's a lot of important stuff that happened in between, so let's take a moment to fill in the gaps of this story. So after creation, the first man and woman in the Bible, Adam and Eve, chose to trust the serpent over what God said. And their actions opened up not just the knowledge of what was good, but also the knowledge of what was evil into their lives, which they found out didn't actually make their lives better. They found when they put their trust in themselves rather than God, life ended up being a lot harder and a lot more painful. And yet they still kind of liked calling their own shots, even though it consistently ended in disaster. So in short, human nature as it currently exists came to be through the fall. Because how often do we still choose what isn't best for us, right? Or is it just me? <laughs> then, with the first brothers, Cain and Abel, came the first human rivalry. And God sees the struggle with envy that's going on in Cain's heart. And in Genesis 4, 6 through 7, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. God sees that Cain is at a crossroads, and he can either admit that he needs God's grace and help with what's going on with him, or he can destroy his brother so he doesn't have to deal with being compared to him. But God is trying to show him his battle is not with his brother but with his own pride. Humble yourself. Choose to trust God. Ask God where he'll lead you from here rather than strike out in anger towards someone you consider your rival. But instead, Cain chooses to murder his brother and things just go downhill from there until God saw in Genesis 6 every inclination of the heart, thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Now, how did something that God had proclaimed, it is good, over multiple times, go so wrong by chapter 6? <laughs> the trajectory of human life was now headed toward death, and a reboot was needed. And so God found Noah and Noah's family as his second chance, Adam and Eve's, and had Noah build an ark and flooded the earth in one big do-over, like an etch-a-sketch, one shake, everything's gone. But the high cost of that broke God's heart. And after the flood, God promised he would never do that kind of do-over again, putting all that he created through that kind of destruction. And he made a covenant, not with just the people, but with all the living creatures on earth in Genesis 9. The next time the world needs to be reset, freed from its trap of its own sinful mess, God was used a completely different method 
to set us free for a new beginning. One with a price that the creatures would not be asked to pay, but the creator himself will bear. And we see God's plan emerging by chapter 12, where God seeks out a man named Abram and gives him a promise that if he will go where God will send him and seek God in that new land, God will start a covenant with his descendants that will bless them to be a blessing to the world, to be the people through which God will teach the world who he is, his character, his heart, what he really wants with us. And Abram agrees to this and goes, and a series of missteps brings them to Egypt for a while before going back to the promised land, where Abram ends up having to rescue his nephew Lot, who happened to get captured in a turf war that was being fought between kings of the region, which he does, winning victory and getting Lot back, winning that victory with just 318 men. Abram then refuses to take any spoils of war for himself, instead giving away 10% of what he has to honor God, who he credits, rightly, with being the reason he won this battle. And Melchizedek, who was a prophet, priest, and king over what would eventually become Jerusalem, blesses him and praises the Lord, the one true God, because of Abram. So, so far, it seems for Abram this call to be part of a people chosen by God to let the world know who God is, is actually off to a pretty good start. And then in Genesis 15, God reiterates his promise to Abram, I'm with you, you are my people, and you and your people will be my people. And Abram says, yeah, that's great, but how's that going to work since I still don't have any kids? And God says, I'm getting to that. Be patient. And he makes this covenant with Abram in the passage I preached on a couple of weeks ago about covenant. So, so far, looking at what scripture has shown us up until now, if you were to ask the question, what does this God want from us? What we've seen is God wants us to trust him, that what he asks of us is actually for our good. And he wants us to trust and be trustworthy for each other. But trust in God takes patience to wait for him to show us what he's revealing. And we often think if God doesn't give us what we want immediately when we ask, that we must be doing something wrong, which is the problem that Abraham and Sarah fall into in Genesis 16. They start thinking, this whole thing is taking too long. Do you think we got it wrong, what God wants from us? Maybe when God promised us an heir, what he really wanted was for us to figure out a way to make that happen. Maybe it's actually up to us to make God's promises come true. So they come up with their own brilliant plan involving Abram and a servant girl, which God did not ask them to do, which made a huge mess of the situation and in the end requires God's intervention to protect and to save the servant girl and her child from that foolishness. Several more chapters pass, showing how things go from bad to worse in surrounding cultures, requiring God's intervention, until finally God tells Abraham and Sarah through some mysterious visitors that the time has now come for them to have their child. And Sarah laughs because Abraham was almost 100 years old and she wasn't far behind. But just as God promised, she did have a child. And they named him Isaac, which means laughter, because it seemed the most delightful joke that this was the way that God brought about his promise long after every last hope they could possibly have in their human abilities was gone. God made a way where there would be no way without him. No amount of human effort on their part could have given them this gift. That was the point. 
And Isaac grew and was the delight of their lives. So what do we learn so far? What does God want? Trust me, I will do what I promise. And my will is for your good. And they have seen it now. And they rejoice in it. And then comes our Genesis text for today. Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. What is this? What is God thinking? Why would God give them this precious heir, promise to give them more descendants than there are stars in the sky, and then tell them to kill him? That makes no sense. What is being tested here in this most seemingly cruel way? Why in the world is this necessary? Especially to us people of modern sensitivities, this story seems incredibly unsettling. But I actually do think it was necessary because I think God was giving Abraham and us his answer to a question we all have, but we don't dare ask. Because deep in the human heart to the question, what does God really want from me? Aren't we in fear tempted to believe that the answer for us too actually looks something like this? That what God really wants from us is the very worst, most painful sacrifice possible? Why do we think that? I think it's because we all know deep within us that we are broken creatures and we are made in the image of a holy God, but we've fallen so far from that. We've become unrecognizable to what we were meant to be. And we know we can't heal. We can't fill the gap of what's broken. It's the heart-level lament that Micah expresses in Micah 6. With what shall I come before the Lord? and bow down before the exalted God. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Why do we always assume that God must want some terrible sacrifice from us? Because we understand that something needs to bridge the gap between God and us. And did you know that in the surrounding cultures in Abraham's day, human sacrifices were a common practice? There was this assumption that what the gods wanted was the one thing that was hardest to give and nothing less. That you could not gain blessing for your people unless you purchased it at the price of your own greatest pain. You know the kind of stories I'm talking about. The village needs rain, so the leaders throw the heir apparent into the volcano to appease the angry gods. This is the kind of cultural surroundings around Abraham. And now think about after everything he had been through, when Abraham finally has the fulfillment of the promise that the Lord gave him, don't you think if it was you, you'd be thinking, when's the shoe going to drop? Isn't this too good to be true? I mean, if the foreign gods demand the sacrifice of the one thing their followers love most, could holy, holy, holy God above all gods demand any less? You see, I think at this point, Abraham had come to trust God's power and his holiness, but the one thing still standing in the way of Abraham's trust in God was that he didn't yet trust God's character. 
What Abraham wrestles with, the question he's asking himself, would I be willing to do this if God asks? And please don't ask. God knew that, and he knew that he and we would always wrestle with this fear until the dreadful day actually comes when Abraham is asked to do what he most fears, until he dully walks up that hill, still clinging to the hope that somehow he'll be allowed to walk down it again with his son. And we can hear it when he answers Isaac's innocent question, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And he answers, God himself will provide the lamb which is in itself, I believe, its own desperate prayer for this to be the truth. But I think not just for himself, but for all future generations, Abraham needs to experience himself to see that even if he were to be asked to offer this kind of sacrifice, even if he finds that he is willing to offer it, that this is not only not what God requires from us, but it is, in the end, a sacrifice that God refuses to accept. Can you imagine the relief that came with that resounding word, stop, with the no that resounds throughout the rest of the history of the people of Israel? When the angel tells Abraham to stop his hand, not to sacrifice his beloved son, when he lifts up his head and sees the gift of the ram right in front of him, stuck in the thicket, given as a replacement offering, he realizes that God has made Abraham's desperate, hopeful words to his beloved son Isaac the truth. God himself will provide the sacrifice, my son. And he did. And in his relief and joy, God, Abraham calls this place, the Lord will provide. You see, it's only by walking that road that he had secretly feared for so long that he could see, could he know down to his bones that this was not the kind of sacrifice that our God wants. He wants our trust. He wants our love, not our pain. The question that Abram didn't dare ask, God gives a definitive answer. And although the surrounding cultures continued with those kind of practices, from this day forward, the people of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob never even entertained it because God had already shown them he isn't a God who demands our pain to bless us. He is the God who himself provides the way for blessing us. There is a sacrifice needed for the healing of what sin has broken in the world to restore broken creatures to a holy, holy, holy God. But in his love for all who put their trust in him, God himself will provide it. The kind of heart-rending sacrifice God did not, would not ask of us, he offered himself for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Which brings us to our gospel text today. You see, God did bring blessing to the world through Abraham's descendants, revealing his true heart, his character, his love, through the birth of his own beloved son into the world. And in John 1, by the power of the Holy Spirit, John the Baptist, who was born to be the forerunner of Christ, saw it, felt it, experienced it at the moment of Jesus' baptism, the beginning of Jesus' mission among us to save. And the next day, as he was walking, he saw Jesus, and he was moved to announce him to the world. But how did he announce the Savior of the world had arrived in the flesh? Behold the conqueror! Behold the King of kings! Behold the name above every name! 
could have. But instead, what the Holy Spirit moved him proclaim was very different. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, I think we're so familiar with that phrase that we completely miss the shock value of it. Because a lamb to take away sin is a sacrifice raised without blemish for the sole purpose of being offered up in compensation for the sins of human beings. So pointing to Jesus, John is saying, behold the human sacrifice who has been sent, provided by God, as the stand-in for your sake, the one who voluntarily comes to take your place in death, to pay the price for your sin, to fill the gap between you and holy God with his sacrifice so you can be free to live in joyful relationship with God both now and for eternity. Behold the lamb. In Jesus, God's provision for you has arrived to set you free. You see, we're all just like Cain, And we can know that sin is crouching at our door and we must master it. And yet sooner or later, it will take us down in the end, leaving us separate from God and each other. We all need a Savior to intervene for us, to reverse our trajectory toward death and give us instead his gift and his promise of eternal life. And no matter how much the enemy of our souls attempts to trick us into thinking God must require something horrible from us for us to be worthy of this, The truth is there is nothing we have in ourselves that we can offer that can bring about that promise of God. Even if we had that hypothetical 10,000 rivers of olive oil Micah was talking about, it would not be enough. There's only one way. He is the way. If God didn't provide it, it wouldn't happen, but he does provide it. And he gives a resounding no to our attempts to think we can buy his favor through our sacrificial pain and a resounding yes to our trust and our joyful giving back out of the provision that he alone supplies. But something in us responds to that gospel of grace with, isn't this good, too good to be true? <laughs> what does God really want from us? And when Jesus asked, is asked this in John 6, what is the work God requires of us? His answer to that is, the work that God requires is this, belief in the one he has sent. Your God is the God who provides for you. Romans 8 says it this way, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him 
who loved us. No matter what we experience in this broken world, we have a promise from God of an unshakable future and hope. Because of what Jesus did and his own sacrifice of love, our story will also not end in death, but through his provision and renewed life with him. It's your life that he's looking for and its own. He will sacrifice to gain it. So if God doesn't ask us to sacrifice something to save ourselves, what does he want for our lives? Well, at the end of that long list of impossible and ineffective sacrifices listed in Micah 6, the prophet ends with a simple resolution in Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Remember from the very beginning God's talk with Cain? You can't fix what's wrong with your relationship with God by striking someone else because <laughs> the problem isn't out there. It's in here. But God himself provides the way to work with that with you and in you. Your Savior loves justice and he loves mercy and he is the source of both. And we will humbly receive as we walk this life with him. So our sacrifice then is to be one of humility before God, a sacrifice of our pride, to confess that we need what God alone can give. And while God may ask us to give up our faith in our own versions of how his promises will be worked out, we can trust that as we walk this life with him, that his promises are his, and we can trust in the goodness of his heart. But when we experience pain and fear and brokenness in this life, we always ask, did I get it wrong? What does God want from me? But when we do, he calls us instead to remember who he is. He is not the God who demands our pain. He is the God who in love has provided a refuge that nothing of this broken world can ever take away from us. The one and only sacrifice required to restore you to God has been given for you. And he will be with you as you humbly walk with him through the mountains and the valleys of life, and nothing will ever separate you from his love. So receive that gift in trust, and let the response of your living sacrifice be to live, being blessed to be a blessing in his name for the world, doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with your God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We thank you, Lord, for your courage, for your love, for your grace, meant for each and every one of us to show us in a powerful way that it is finished. The work of our redeeming has been done by you and you alone. So Lord, set us free to see your love, to see your calling, to see the joy of knowing that we belong to you now and forever. In whatever mountain or valley we find ourselves, Lord, we know that you can see us, that you're with us there, and that your strength, your grace, your forgiveness sets us free to start anew every day, trusting in that future and that hope that you've given us. So, Lord, teach us to trust you, that you are good, and that you are at work for our good. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.